subscribe. If you want to get out your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians is going to be where we'll be studying tonight. Uh, we're working our way through the 66 books of the Bible and our overviews, and we are getting close. We've got about 10 more books left to study after tonight. So uh, we're, we've, we've definitely come a long way in looking at all these books, and I've, I've enjoyed it. I hope it's been helpful for you. I hope I've been getting better at this uh, <laughs> and not, not worse at this, but um, I hope, hope that this helps you to think about letters and books of the Bible from a bigger picture uh, to try to digest all of this information at once is a, a bit difficult sometimes, but I think it's very helpful uh, before we enter into a more detailed study. Uh, this is another shorter book. We only have three chapters to cover tonight, so I'm going to try to resist the urge to go into greater detail uh, than, than we have time for, but uh, there's, there's a lot to study in such a small book, which is typically the case. Um, we, we looked at 1 Thessalonians last, week, or last month, and we saw how they're a great group. Uh, this is a, a fantastic church uh, that, that Paul has established in Thessalonica. As we uh, saw, we connected it to Acts and saw uh, the Macedonian call that Paul was given to go into that region, and he found there faithful Gentiles who um, he was happy to hear after he had to leave early, they remained faithful with him out of the picture. Uh, they still pursued the things that Paul had spent very little time teaching them, uh, and they were faithful to all those things. Whenever he sent Timothy to them, Timothy brought back a great report. Uh, and so Paul's message to them in that letter was, I want you to be abounding in the things that you've already been doing. You know, What do you say to somebody who's doing the things that they're supposed to do? Uh, do more of it, you know, keep, keep abounding in love, keep abounding in faith and doing the things that God has given you the command and the, and the calling to do in your life to fulfill uh, your role in the kingdom. When we come to 2 Thessalonians, it's not a letdown. Uh, it's actually more encouragement. This is uh, still a great group. As we start the book, we see Paul is still thankful for the Thessalonians. There's not any scathing rebuke in this letter. Uh, there's, there's some discussion about maybe an area where some of them are slacking and falling uh, and, and maybe some fears of future falling and things like that. But for the most part, this is a great group. They're growing in faith and love, just like Paul told them to. Uh, Paul, Paul has found that they are sincere seekers. You know, they're not just sincere. They're not just... Uh, you know, devoted to their religion and, and wanting to keep the things that they've been taught, but they are actually seeking to do the things that God wants them to do. You know, Paul tells them, I want you to grow and be even more uh, faithful, even more loving toward other people, and they're doing it. Uh, read with me verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You see, the picture is that they are a, a, a faithful group that is abounding and growing in faith and love. But what's amazing is they're abounding in it when there's persecutions and afflictions that are going on. 
The same problems that Paul experienced whenever he was there with the Thessalonians, the same problems that caused Paul to have to leave Thessalonica early, are still going on, but these Christians are unwavering. They're staying faithful. And in fact, uh, they're not just holding the, the same faith and love that they've always had. You know, they're growing. You know, it's like the persecutions that they're having to endure has stimulated growth instead of stunting their growth. It's increased their love for one another and their bond together. Uh, and, and that's the picture that we get of the Thessalonians, that it's possible if we endure great persecutions that the church not disintegrate, but that the church hold together, grow stronger in faith and stronger in love toward one another. That's possible in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. And that is very much what we see happening in Thessalonica. Then Paul talks a little bit more about these afflictions that they're going through. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 12, we see uh, that those who have persecuted them are being afflicted. God is actually afflicting the afflictors. They're, they're running into all kinds of problems. You saw a hint of that in the, the first Thessalonians letter, and now we see it again. And Paul says something very interesting in verse 5. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the picture of uh, uh, this is an assurance that we have. Uh, the things that are going on in your life, you're abounding in faith, you're abounding in love, is evidence that God has been working in you, that God brought about the transformation in you that's supposed to happen. And it's evidence, uh, as you see those who are afflicting you, undergoing some affliction, he says, this is evidence that God is, is working and that God is bringing an ultimate judgment in the future against those who are against you. So what he's basically saying is, I want you to take note of what's going on to the persecutors because that's the exact same thing that God's going to do on the judgment day. He's going to bring justice like nobody's ever brought justice before. And so he's trying to encourage them with these words. He's trying to, to lift them up and, it, and, and encourage them that even though you have to go through these kind of persecutions, even though they're going to come and take all your possessions, uh, even though they're going to throw you in prison and, and hurt you and all that, pay close attention. God is showing you he's in control and he's going to bring about the ultimate judgment that is coming very soon, uh, that, that, that will happen before you know it, when we will all be gathered uh, to the Lord and Jesus will repay them with punishment uh, that they deserve because they refuse to obey the gospel. Verse 10, he says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of their testimony to you was believed. Uh, there's a picture of Jesus coming in glory and him also sharing his glory uh, with those who believed in him, uh, that they will receive glory, that they will be blessed and praised uh, because of their faithfulness to the very end. Uh, verses 11 and 12 tell us Paul's prayer for the church. Now we see this 
in almost all of Paul's letters, he reveals to them his prayer for them. And he says in verse 11, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus. He says, I'm praying that God will make, that our God will make you worthy of his calling. It's a very similar idea to what Paul said in other letters. But this is very fascinating. That God will fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by his power. Think about that for a second. Paul is essentially saying to the Thessalonians... You're resolving to do some good works in the name of Jesus. And I'm praying that God will fulfill every resolve for good work that you have inside of you. You've determined in yourself, you're going to go out and you're going to convert these people. Or you're going to go out and you're going to help these people. Or you're going to do this or do that. May God fulfill whatever the resolve is. Have you ever prayed for that? And just kind of pause for a second and maybe do a little application, think about this a little bit. Is this the way we think? Is this the way we're praying? You know, I don't know how many times I've had some kind of uh, work in my mind that I really wanted to do for the Lord. (laughs) My first thought is not usually, well, I need to go to God in prayer about this, that he'll fulfill whatever this resolve is. And yet, that's exactly what Paul's saying here is, I want God to fulfill that for you. And he says uh, he's going to do that by his power. God is going to work in your work to bring about the glorification of Jesus' name and your glorification in Jesus. It's very fascinating. That's something that we, we need to hold on to. And we'll bring that up and talk about that a little bit again at the end. But that's a very, very important point for the rest of this letter and what Paul is trying to get across to the Thessalonians. Well, we go forward into chapter 2, and he says, Now concerning, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, the very thing he'd kind of hinted at a little bit before, the thing he talked about in 1 Thessalonians, apparently they're really interested in this. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He tells these Thessalonians, uh, about Jesus' return, I don't want you to be shaken or scared. If somebody comes to you and says, oh yeah, Jesus already came, you missed it. <laughs> don't, don't be shaken by that. That's not true. You know, uh, He says, let no one deceive you, verse 3, in any way, for that day has not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Paul says, don't let anybody upset you about the Lord's return. He's not returned until after the rebellion comes and after the man of lawlessness comes uh, and he is revealed. So 
these things haven't happened yet. You haven't experienced this. You haven't seen this happen. Apparently, they will see this happen before the Lord returns, uh, which, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) That's the way he talks throughout this letter. You're going to see the man of lawlessness be revealed. That's okay. A lot of people are asking the question, who is this man of lawlessness? You know? We'll attribute it to Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin and say it's the end of the world. The, the Lord's returning. The man of lawlessness is here. And all these antichrists, megalomaniacs, you know, kind of crazy people that show up and cause all kinds of devastation, destruction, uh, bring about a lot of rebellion against God's word and against the truth. And yet the way that Paul talks to these people is you'll know the Lord hasn't come yet. Because you hadn't seen the rebellion take place. You hadn't seen the man of lawlessness come. And he says, this man of lawlessness is the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then he says in verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? See how Paul is talking about this stuff as though... He's already talked about it to them. (laughs) This is not new information that he's trying to reveal to them that they'd never heard before. He's just simply reminding them. Remember, I told you, before the Lord returns in judgment, there's going to be a rebellion and there's going to be the man of lawlessness that's going to come. Okay? And verse 7 tells us, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then... The, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You see how he's talking about this as though it's something that's going to come fairly soon. Because he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And the one who's restraining it is only going to do so for a certain amount of time until some, the, the man of lawlessness is out of the way and then he's going to allow this to go further. And then Jesus is going to come and by the breath of his mouth, wipe them out. Now you do a little study in Revelation and you kind of get the picture of a beast and you get the picture of a false prophet and Satan working with all kinds of signs and false false signs and wonders to lure people to himself. And it sounds a whole lot like this. So you want to know who the man of lawlessness is? You want to know who the son of destruction is? Go study in Revelation more, and, and good luck figuring that out. <laughs> um, you know, that's, it's, not, it's not easy to determine that. But the point that he's trying to get across is that the coming of the lawless one is going to happen before the Lord comes and brings a judgment. So, okay, what are we supposed to do with all that? <laughs> you know, uh, if the mystery's already at work and, and this guy's going to come and deceive people, there's going to be rebellion and all this is going to happen in the first century, second century, uh, what are we supposed to do with that? I think there's some parallels to the things that we're doing today uh, and the things that are happening today, but I don't think that that's really what Paul's talking about. (laughs) And that's just my understanding, my interpretation, my opinion about 
the things that I'm studying and the things that I'm reading. Uh, but I think there's parallels to the things that we're reading about here and a lot of the things that are going on in our day of men and women being led astray from faithful service and worship to rebellion against God and doing things that are evil in many different ways. And so we see that Satan is working like he was then. Uh, and it says uh, he's got this wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So you want to try to figure out who the man of lawlessness is? You want to, you want to try to nail down somebody in our day and say the Lord's coming real soon? Well, why are you worried about that? The focus should be on, am I one of those who are being deceived by the deception of Satan? And do I refuse to love the truth and so be saved? That's my concern. That's what I care most about. And that's something that the Thessalonians need to know. There's deception coming, and he's trying to warn them. There's a deception that's coming that's going to pull people away from Christ and the things that I've taught you, Thessalonians, the traditions that I've handed down to you. And you need to be sure that you're holding on fast to those things that I told you. And in fact, the next section actually gets to that and says, stand firm, and we'll, we'll, we'll do a whole, whole bit about that. But first notice, these who, lo- who, lo- who refuse to love the truth will fall. And not only that, verse 11 says, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this deception is going to happen. And all those who are rejecting your word, Thessalonians, those who refuse to love the truth, they're going to to refuse the truth even more. And they're going to take more pleasure in unrighteousness, and God's going to send them a delusion so that they stay condemned, and then they will be destroyed. And he's telling them all this because you need to be sure you don't jump ship, and you don't side with those who are evil. But you need to instead stand firm. That's why he says that in the next section, going from chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to 3, 5. He's trying to encourage them to stand firm in the things that they were told and taught by the apostles, uh, the word that he has shared with them, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Okay, a a picture of what, what Paul wants them to do. And then he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You see Paul asking for them to stand firm to the word that he shared with them and also asking for God to work to comfort them and to establish them. And then he asked them to pray for him. (laughs) This is fascinating. Uh, You don't really see this a whole lot of times uh, in this way. But the Thessalonians seem to be so faithful that Paul is asking them to pray for him because he's going through the same things that they're going to be going through. The man of lawlessness and all this deception and work of Satan is going to affect his work. And so he asked for the Thessalonians to pray for him as he prays for them as they both go through the same struggle, asking God to deliver them both from the evil, wicked men who are pursuing them and trying to kill them. 
And then he says these words of encouragement after praying for them and asking for their prayers. He says this, starting in verse 3 of chapter 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Again, a picture of we are praying to God and relying on God to protect us, to guard us against this deception, and also telling them God is faithful. He is going to establish and guard you. He is going to provide for you. And I'm praying again for that to happen and for God to direct your hearts to love God and to have the steadfastness that Christ had in the midst of his trials. The last section of the book is about a a, a warning, a command and a warning. He says, starting off in in chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers. Uh, The command is odd. Uh, it's connected to a command that he had previously given them. If you go down to chapter 10, or verse 10, it says, Even when we were with you, uh, we would give this command to you. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So whenever he was with them, he was telling them, If anybody's not willing to work, don't, he's not to eat. Now, maybe that's just referring to the Lord's Supper. It's probably referring to period. You know, these are probably very generous people who are wanting to give to brethren who had been kicked out of their homes, been robbed of everything because of their faith or something like that. And so the generosity is overflowing toward these Christians. And then he says, look, if these people are just going to sit back and wait for the Lord's return and not, and not do any work to provide for themselves and bear their own load, then don't let them eat. That's odd, isn't it, <laughs> that he says that. Well, it's even more odd in verse 6 if you go back and look at it. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we command you, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Not only does he say, if he doesn't work, neither let him eat, but he says, keep away from these people, these idle people who are not willing to do the work. Uh, that they should be willing to do. And and in verses 11 11 through 15, he says the same thing. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. Hear the repeated phrase. Take note of them and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. And then he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So twice he says, have nothing to do with him. You know, stay away from him. Now why? You don't want to fall into the deceptions that he's, being, he's fallen into. You know, you don't, want, you don't want people just, the whole church, to just stop working and trying to rely on other people to work for them. We want workers in the kingdom. He says in the middle of this, in verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, the picture of the Thessalonian church is they are abounding in faith and they are abounding in love. This is a hard-working, faithful group. And this is what needs to keep happening and he's, 
He just doesn't want them to grow weary. Now, you take somebody who's a leech, who's just constantly sucking you dry and not willing to lift their own load. That's going to be a discouragement. And these Christians could easily grow weary of doing good to people, which is not what they should have happen at all. So he doesn't say, oh, just keep giving to them even though they're idle and they don't work. He says, stop giving to them and stay away from them. But keep being good and doing good and loving and sharing what you have, obviously. Do good to those around you. But also notice that the desire for the person who is idle is to make them ashamed. You know, if somebody so good and loving and caring and generous tells you, I'm done. You know, I, I, I'm not going to give you anymore. You have to change. Then it should make you ashamed and make you want to change and come back and do the work that you can do. All right, so that is essentially the whole letter of Second Thessalonians. Uh, you've got three kind of sections there, the, the picture of thanksgiving and encouragement, uh, the picture of the, the deception that's going on uh, that they need to be prepared for, and the picture of idleness throughout the book. Uh, but the thanksgiving section should really strike a chord with us, as we, as we did earlier in First Thessalonians, that, that there's such pictures of faithfulness. These are Gentiles who have turned to the Lord and become faithful. And so we should ask ourselves, are we like them? Are we examples of faithfulness? I love how Paul uh, said it in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. Paul's boasting about the Thessalonian church, you know. Is that what happens whenever a preacher comes here that they're going out and boasting about how great the church is at Sarah Land? They've got so much faith and so much love and all that they're doing. You know, is the name of the Sarah Land church going out as a name of faithful people that everybody's like, okay, we want to be faithful like they're faithful. We see they're, they're persecuted, they're afflicted, and yet they're remaining true and they're showing love and they're growing spiritually even more, you know. This is the picture of the Thessalonians. And the question is, why can't we set this kind of example? Why can't we? Why can't we become a group that is so involved in sharing the gospel that we are an encouragement to all these other congregations out there that think nobody will believe anything? And they just sit and do nothing. Why can't we be the group that goes out and shares the gospel and finds a huge number of people accepting the gospel and converts people and brings people in and encourages people and strengthens their members so much so that they're here all the time desiring to eat the word as much as they can? Why can't we be that group? I think what Paul has warned the Thessalonians of could be true here. And I think it's true of me a lot of times. And what Paul says is, do not grow weary in doing good. We need to take that to heart. I know a lot of us here that I've talked to have been discouraged before. Uh, in the last few years have been really tough for a lot of you. Uh, with uh, flaky attendance because of various events and things that have happened and and all of this stuff, and you know, I mean, we're here on Sunday night. This is the, the core group that's faithful, that's always coming. You know this. Uh, but look who's here. 
Look who is, is sincere seeking and desiring to eat in all the word that they can. Who is going out and spreading the gospel and teaching people. I hear conversations that, that, that some of you are having with your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends. And the love that's going out and the faith that's going out. And we need to be built up by one another and we need to be continuing in that. Don't grow weary in that. Talk to one another about it. You don't know who you're lifting up whenever you tell somebody about your struggles and the things that you're trying to do that's not going well. You know, they've probably done the same things, and they're probably wore out and tired of it, and they might have given up by now. Lift them up. Be an example for them of faithfulness. When you say that, as I say that, I realize how hard that is <laughs> and how easy it is for us to be weary and tired of doing good. But what this text also tells us is that there is an answer, an untapped resource that we can trust in the Lord for our growth. You know, if you start looking at it very much, you start you know, opening your mind up to this idea, you'll see it everywhere. Paul never relies on himself for spiritual growth. He never relies on the church that he's talking to for their spiritual growth. He never beats them over the head and says, why aren't you growing? Why aren't you growing? Why aren't you growing? He always points to God and he says, I'm praying for you that God will bring about your spiritual growth. You see, his perception on the reality of the spiritual battle that we're fighting is that God is so good and so powerful. And if we'll just rely on him and lean on him, then God's power can work to strengthen us and to bring about our glorification of Christ. And 2 Thessalonians is just bleeding with this idea. It's throughout the entire book, this idea that uh, may God do this, may God do this, may God do this, I'm praying for God to do this. Are you praying for God to do this? Let's pray for God to do this because God is willing to do this and he wants to do this for his glorification. So don't think I'm crazy as I say this, but are we praying for God to work? Are we praying for God to uh, fulfill every resolve for good work that we have? Are we relying on him? Are we, are we asking for his help in everything? Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May God do that for you. Chapter 3, verse 3. 
But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Chapter two, verse three, or chapter three, verse five. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit in Ephesians, and I don't know if it sunk in well with you, but it hadn't sunk in well enough with me. <laughs> Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You know, if we resolve to do something good, we need to understand that we will only be able to accomplish that good if God is working in us and helping us with that good. I can't do it on my own. If I try, it'll just be a failure. Any success I have is because God is doing it and working and helping me. And I have to change my mindset to think that way. And I don't think we talk that way for fear of denominations because they stole it from us and they're using it and we don't want to sound like them, but it's the way that Paul talked. And throughout Acts, what we see is a picture of Christians saying, God did this for us. God worked this. God made this happen. And we're about to be uh, doing an evangelism workshop on Wednesday nights. It's about inviting people to services. It's about uh, trying to invite people to Bible studies, personal Bible studies. Trying to invite people to just relationship, to be friends with people. And we have to have enough faith that God is going to work in that to bring about the conversion of, of lost souls. And I think that's what the Thessalonians are doing. And I think that's what we really need to learn to do. I need to learn to do. Um, so I hope you'll help me with that. I hope we can all help one another with that and encourage one another in that kind of work because it's very fulfilling and it will be successful. God promises it will be. If we'll just ask him for help, he will be there for us and he'll help us. Uh, if there's anybody here tonight who needs God's help, uh, who needs forgiveness of sins, who needs uh, building up and encouragement, I hope that you will go to God in prayer often. And I hope that you will submit your will to his. And I hope if, if we can help you that you'll let us know so that we can do something to try to help you and encourage you in your walk. Uh, thank you for everything that you do. Um, but let's keep abounding in love and faith for one another. But if you have, if you have a need, please come as we stand and as we sing.